Hey, Climate Conscious listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to the C1 Review, a podcast presenting highlights from some of our past shows. You can check out videos, podcasts, and more at climateone.org. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, exposes the connection between big tobacco and big oil in their efforts to influence public opinion. A lot of the same people that the tobacco companies hired to create doubt and confusion about the dangers of smoking subsequently went to work for the petrochemical companies. Some climate warriors find they can't just continue to argue about the science. For them, it's time to take action. I was just sort of looking at the situation, saying, if I do this, I'll probably go to prison for two or three years. Could I live with that? And I thought, yeah, I could, I could live with that. Influencing hearts and minds in the era of climate volatility. Up next on Climate One. Climate One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. We're going to the extreme ends of climate change debate and action. While most of us are still comfortable sitting in the center, perhaps accepting the science but not doing much about it, there are some organizations and individuals who are willing to jump off a bridge to convince us of the peril we face. And there are others who are using misinformation and deception to try to sow doubt in our minds about whether there is any problem at all. We're going to start with those doubters. It turns out that the people who are promoting the idea that climate change is still an open question are using the same tactics that the tobacco industry used back in the 90s. In fact, some of them are actually the same people. To learn about this anti-climate campaign, Greg talked to four people who've been digging into the topic. Lowell Bergman is a professor at UC Berkeley School of Journalism. He earned a Pulitzer Prize and many other awards as an investigative journalist working for CBS News, The New York Times, and Frontline. Stanton Glanz is director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California, San Francisco. He's the author of four books, including Tobacco War, Inside the California Battles. Ken Kimmel is president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, which recently published the Climate Deception Dossiers on the PR and lobbying activities of fossil fuel companies. And Bill Riley was administrator of the US EPA under the first President Bush. He later joined the board of the oil company ConocoPhillips. He's currently a senior advisor to TPG Capital and a member of our own Climate One Advisory Council. Here's Greg, talking about doubt and deception. Stan Gans, let's begin with you. Take us back to, say, the 80s, when people started to be more concerned about the health impacts of tobacco and the social license and the attitude towards smoking started to change from when the era of Mad Men, lots of people smoked. Right. Well, the public concern over the issues of tobacco really started to appear way back in the 1950s when Reader's Digest published an article called Cancer by the Carton. And there was tremendous public concern. States were talking about banning cigarette advertising. There were demands to have Congress regulate the tobacco industry. And the tobacco companies realized that they couldn't really contest the evidence linking cancer and smoking, so they came up with the the idea of creating doubt. And there's a very famous document in the tobacco industry document saying doubt is our product, because all they had to do was get people confused about it, and by claiming that the issue wasn't proven, that provided cover for politicians to leave them alone, 
and it helps smokers rationalize their continued smoking. So at the same time, they were saying to the public, you know, we, we don't know whether smoking causes cancer or not. Their own scientists internally were saying smoking causes cancer. And when I look at these two areas, I see tremendous parallels, in part because a lot of the same people and companies that the tobacco companies hired to create doubt and confusion about the dangers of smoking subsequently went to work for the petrochemical companies to do the same thing. Ken Kimmel, everyone here listening to this used fossil fuels today. It enables modern life in a way that's very different than tobacco, yet there are some similarities between the tobacco episode and and tactics and players. So tell us about similarities in the doubt. Sure. Let me peel back the onion a little bit so people can see what actually happened and, and judge for themselves how closely similar it is to what happened with tobacco. So the story starts a long time ago, but I'll start it in 1995 when the petroleum companies formed a global climate coalition to provide kind of a unified response to the discussions that were ongoing about climate change and what to do about it. And the first thing they did actually was to hire their own scientific team to give them advice on climate change. And that team was headed by the chief scientist of Mobile. And the memo that was provided to the Global Climate Coalition said as follows, the scientific basis for the greenhouse effect and the potential impact of human emissions of greenhouse gases such as CO2 on climate is well established and cannot be denied. Fast forward three years, the Kyoto Protocol has now been negotiated and uh, pending before the United States Senate is is to ratify the treaty. Um, And the American Petroleum Institute, funded by the same people who were in this global climate coalition, created a global science communication team. Some of the people who were on that team were people who worked for the tobacco industry. Um, And here's what they said their goal was. Victory will be achieved when average citizens understand, and understand is in quotes, uncertainties in climate science, recognition of uncertainties becomes part of the conventional wisdom. And in that memo, they detail uh, a public relations strategy, a great deal of public announcements and op-eds and advertisements trying to claim that there's doubt about climate science. And if you go back in time, you'll see a lot of those types of publications in the late 90s and and the 2000s. Ironically, when they say publicly that climate science is uncertain, it turns out that they were actually following their scientists' advice about climate change when it came to their own investment decisions. So they perfectly understood this, yet they denied it publicly, and they launched a campaign to cultivate and fund contrarian scientists. One of those scientists is a guy named Willie Soon, whose theory is that solar variability is what causes climate change. Interestingly, that 1995 memo itself said that that theory was not valid and couldn't account for climate change. But Mr. Soon got funded to the tune of $1.2 million over a 10-year period, and he had a very interesting funding arrangement. He worked for the Smithsonian, and the deal for his funding was twofold. The companies that funded him, like ExxonMobil, insisted they get the chance to see his publications before they were made public, and they insisted that the Smithsonian agree not to disclose that Mm. ExxonMobil was actually funding his work. So there you have it. And I guess the point I want to make is that is just the tip of the iceberg. We now have an investigation by the New York Attorney General and the California Attorney General. My prediction is a lot more is going to come out, and this conversation will heat up dramatically over time. Bill Riley, you've been on both sides of this as the country's top environmental officer and also a fiduciary officer at an oil company. How do you uh, respond to kind of some of these stories that you've just heard? Well, one of the priorities that we set at the beginning of my term at EPA was to pay attention to the air problem that hadn't been addressed in any way at all, and that is indoor air. And the Science Advisory Board to EPA was very concerned about that being a source of mortality, morbidity that were really largely neglected. The most significant uh, implicated problem was smoking. And so I declared sidestream smoke a class A carcinogen. And uh, within a very short period of time, you had laws in most municipalities in the country that did, in fact, forbid smoking in publicly accessible space and buildings. So that issue was hard fought. Can I just jump in on this? Because... You were at the top on that 1991 EPA report. I was at the bottom. 
And that was a tremendously important document because the EPA identifying secondhand smoke as indoor air pollution just changed the way people thought about the problem from a personal health problem to an environmental problem. It just transformed the discussion. And the tobacco companies were absolutely terrified of that report. They brought their lawsuits. They did this and that. But they then started a concerted effort to discredit the U.S. EPA. And they created something called the Sound Science Coalition to attack the EPA over the confidence intervals. They're really good at naming, aren't they? Yeah. (laughs) But the point was... The tobacco companies by then knew that they had such low public credibility that they couldn't be publicly identified with this sound science coalition. So they reached out to other industries, to the petrochemical industry, to the pharmaceutical industry, to a whole ra- to the food industry, a whole range of industries that was potentially threatened by science-based regulation to provide cover for the tobacco companies who were calling all the shots. And then these other companies realized that, oh, hey, this is actually a pretty good idea. And the same people who formed the Sound Science Coalition, the denier scientists, basically to try to discredit the EPA generally, ended up going to work not just for tobacco, but for all these other companies and building the whole science denialist. So these things really do you know, come together very tightly. Let me, let me pose a question to Lowell, if I might. It's always bothered me. For so long, science has been so clear, and yet the way the issue was reported was invariably to give voice to the deniers in every damn article. And that contributed absolutely to the strategy that they had. You're talking about nicotine and cigarettes? Uh, no, I'm, no I'm, I'm sorry. I'm talking about climate change. Uh, climate change. Climate change called the uh, balance bias, that 97% of scientists get the same weight in a news article as the 3% who don't. I call it false balance. Okay. What we would hear from the scientists was so definitive. And then you see an article, and there would always be the skeptical person quoted as a serious scientist very often. Most of them were not, as it turned out. But that has always bothered me in terms of reporting. Lowell Bergman? Money talks. And the tobacco industry or, or industries in general, in pursuit of their profit and maintaining the value of their stock, will spend a huge amount of money to influence what's going on in news organizations. Right. In the tobacco situation, the industry hired a public relations specialist who had been a journalist, a man named John Scanlon. He was inside the offices of 60 Minutes arguing directly with management, and he would entertain them in the evening as well. So I would say that it shouldn't surprise people that in the established media there is a great influence by what we would call multinational corporations or other people with great wealth and power. So I think one of the things that we have to accept is that the way public opinion is made in the United States and most countries is not necessarily rational. Ken Kimmel, some environmentalists think that the oil company's got to be put out of business. Other people, Mary Nichols, head of the California Air Board, says that we need the engineering expertise and, and scientific talent that these energy giants have. What's the Union of Concerned Scientists think should be the, the future for oil companies, to put them out of business or to transition them to something else? Transition them to something else. And one of the reasons that we are raising these issues about the accountability campaign and seeking to hold companies responsible is we think this pressure coupled with other economic factors can push them in a, in a better direction. So I think it is still possible for major oil companies to make very, very meaningful changes to their business plan, invest in renewable energy, stop the deception, and start moving towards the types of fuels that cause the least harm while we still need it. And and in the long run, though, I do believe, and the science tells us this is clear, we have to unaddict ourselves to fossil fuels if we have any hope of meeting the goals that we just agreed to in Paris. Your organization also is pushing for investigations of oil companies in California and New York, perhaps using RICO uh, laws, which have been used in, in other cases. What do you expect to come from that? And is there a deal to be made with oil companies like was made with tobacco companies? I think there is. It's not going to happen right away. I think these investigations got to play out. The tobacco settlements didn't happen right away either. But, but I do think there is, on the horizon, a global settlement here, which involves the oil companies not just agreeing in principle to a carbon price, but really supporting it, putting aside funds, especially for the most vulnerable countries in the world, 
and again, switching their business to the most low-carbon sources. So I think there is a deal along those lines to be had, but we're a long ways from that right now. And one of the first things that we want to see happen here, and, and it is starting to happen, we want these companies to stop fighting every reform tooth and nail and stop funding those legislators who are fighting them. And I do think it's an encouraging sign that Shell and British Petroleum, for example, have both said publicly that they're leaving the group known as ALEC, which is a group that goes all around the country trying to convince state legislators that the reforms that they put in place that are actually working should be repealed. So I think we're starting to see some signs that this is starting to get some of the results we'd hope. We're talking about tobacco and climate change at Climate One. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We're picking up the conversation now about truth and treachery in the climate debate with Lowell Bergman, professor at UC Berkeley, Stanton Glanz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at the University of California, San Francisco, Ken Kimmel, president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Bill Riley, a senior advisor to TPG Capital. Here's our host, Greg Dalton. Uh, I want to ask Bill Riley, tobacco companies agreed to $200 billion over 25 years. Could that happen in oil, or is that even analogous in any way? You know, it, it seems to me less likely that the industry as a whole will turn out to be as culpable as the tobacco industry was. I don't think there was the same. Most of the evidence I've seen has come from one company, but uh, I haven't really studied that. You know, studied if, if you all, go into the that, tobacco documents and type in global warming... You'll get enough reading material to keep you busy for a long time. And I think it was very, very broad across the industry. I think the same kind of conspiracy existed. I just think that we're in an issue that's much bigger than tobacco. And it's a much bigger situation than just even the the oil companies, because we have whole nations from Saudi Arabia to Venezuela who are dependent on the production of oil. So there's strategic questions here, it seems to me, that make this a much more difficult and nuanced problem. Bill Riley? One of the major questions that's got to be on the minds of the oil industry is the very large amount of reserves, which they add to every year, and which analysts use to value their shares. All of a sudden, the word is more or less getting out, and I think it's reasonably accepted that we cannot, as a planet, consume all of those reserves. They simply cannot be burned and still meet the objectives that the world has set itself in Paris and before. I want to roll some tape of Shell President Marvin Odom. He was here a while back, and I asked him about climate change. Let's hear what Marvin Odom, president of Shell Oil, had to say. Where is your position and Shell's position on climate change and man-made climate change? Climate change is real. Humans have an enormous impact on that, and it requires some sort of action going forward. I'd say the number one element of that advocacy is putting a price on carbon. Marvin Odom, president of Shell Oil, saying the company wants a price on carbon, and they they say that quite consistently publicly now, yet they're part of organizations of American Petroleum Institute, which work pretty hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Bill Riley? I don't think they're major players at American Petroleum Institute, from my experience, but that's true that they have come out for a price on carbon. In fact, one of the interesting things to me is uh, how much farther the oil industry is than the Congress in recognizing the need to impute a carbon price. Ken Kimmel. ExxonMobil also says that it favors carbon pricing, and if you go to its website, you'll see that. But we just put out a report that tracked the votes of various legislators who voted on actual carbon tax, revenue-neutral carbon tax proposals, which is what ExxonMobil says it wants. And it turns out that about 80% of the legislators who voted no to those proposals are getting campaign contributions from ExxonMobil. So one has to wonder, because they are such an effective lobbying group, if they really wanted a carbon price, you would think they'd be able to make some progress in the Congress getting one. Yeah, this is another similarity to the tobacco companies, because they've said for years publicly, we don't want kids to smoke. But when you look in their documents at the marketing, it's like the teenager is the future of our industry. And I think that the petrochemical industry is different from tobacco. If we could snap our fingers and be rid of tobacco, that would be great. We need the energy industry. But the one thing they have in common is that they're both trying to maximize profits in the short run. 
And by doing that, they fight regulation. And as I watch what's going on in the climate debate, I still see deniers out there. I still see them being funded by the petrochemical industry. And I still see the industry doing everything they can in terms of their actual political actions to slow progress. And I think the lawsuits that are being talked about now by a couple of the state attorneys general are very, very important because the discovery in those lawsuits is really what's changed the tobacco debate. And I think one of the real heroes in the tobacco story was Skip Humphrey, who was the attorney general of Minnesota, who did huge amounts of discovery during the Minnesota lawsuit against the tobacco industry. And Skip used to say to me, the most important thing to come out of this litigation is the truth. Yeah, but I think that you have to uh, come back to the news media and the coverage of the issue, what's going on in the Middle East, the role that oil plays in all of that that's going on. There's very little in the public media, in the broadcasting industry in general, and in print that gets out to a large number of people. And on the radio, you have deniers. On the radio, the talk shows are filled with deniers. So people who work in the industry have a hard time selling a story that has such a serious question and that will jeopardize potentially the profits of the organization they work for. Let's turn to our audience questions. We're talking about the oil industry and the tobacco industry at Climate One. Welcome. Hi, my name is Paul Pasimino. Um, As someone who works at an organization that's been targeted specifically by an oil company using the RICO law to try to suppress our free speech, that's Chevron and Amazon Watch, I wonder if you guys could talk about (coughs) some of the harsher, dirtier tactics you see these companies getting ready to and and are likely to employ against people, individuals, organizations, etc., even the government, um, to try to suppress the story. Thank you. Stan Glanz, some of the the hardball? Oh, yeah. They've sued the University of California twice, trying to shut our work down. UC stuck up to them and won. Uh, I just had another, yet another Freedom of Information Act request put in about our research. So they're, they're there. Just Google me, and you'll find out what a terrible person I am. Bill Riley, I have had experiences where scientists gave me advice quietly about bad effects of a pesticide or chemical or something of that sort, and then um, declined to say publicly right. later what they had advised me to do. Right. And I would talk to them about it. And more than once, they said, look, it's not worth it. You know, uh, you'll get quoted out of context. You'll be uh, understood to be uh, much simpler than the explanation you give and that sort of thing. So people do pay a price. There's no question they pay, scientists pay a price. And it does, I think, very often cause them to think, well, I'd just as soon stay out of it. Lowell Bergman? There's really a political problem here. And this administration uh, may have, let's say, relatively speaking, a liberal policy related to environmental issues. But when it comes to, for example, enforcing or investigating major corporations for their activities, it has one of the worst track records, particularly in terms of criminal prosecutions of senior executives. So these things are going to become, I think, more political before things change. Let's go to our next audience question. We're talking about the oil industry and the tobacco industry at Climate One. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. Um, Can you comment on the difficulty of getting people to understand how quickly climate change is becoming more and more disastrous. We have maybe a decade to get off of fossil fuels. We don't end this addiction, it's going to end us. Ken Kimmel. One of the most scary things about climate change is the way the early modeling is being validated, except the effects are happening much more severely and much more quickly than those models actually predicted. A second element of the scary nature of it is the synergistic effects and the fact that climate change begets more emissions, it begets more climate change. But I would say this, I I think that a continued emphasis with journalists on attacking this notion of false balance and and not having, you know, the climate denier debate the, the actual climate scientist, it is making a difference. If you look at public opinion polling, the majority of people who believe that climate science is a serious problem and needs to get addressed is going up. It's especially going up amongst young people, even Republican voters under 40, about two-thirds of them 
say they accept the science and they think less of candidates who deny it. So, so this is changing. But again, the problem is the political system is not changing nearly fast enough to get us to where we need to be. So fortunately, people are finally getting it, but we've lost a lot of time. And that is just the, the tragedy of it. Listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Greg's been talking about misinformation in the climate debate with Lowell Bergman, a professor at UC Berkeley School of Journalism, Stanton Glanz, director of the Center for Tobacco Control Research and Education at UC San Francisco, Ken Kimmel, president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Bill Riley, a former administrator of US EPA under the first President Bush. We'd like to know what you think about climate science deception. Our email is climateone at commonwealthclub.org. Or join us on Twitter. Our handle is at climateone. We're going to turn now to a conversation about taking action, sometimes radical action, to stop the fossil fuel companies in their tracks. Tim DeChristopher is the founder of the Climate Disobedience Center. He spent 21 months in federal prison for disrupting an auction for oil and gas leases. Georgia Hursty works with Greenpeace. In 2015, she jumped off a bridge in Portland to block a supply ship heading towards Shell's drilling operations in the Arctic. And this wasn't her only news-catching caper. Brendan Steele is taking a different tack. As director of stakeholder engagement with the group Future 500, he's working inside the halls of the fossil fuel companies to advocate for change. Here's our conversation about facing down the fossil fuel train. Tim DeChristopher, let's begin with you. You were a college student and you heard Terry Root give a talk about climate change and that changed your life. Yeah, I was studying climate change quite a bit at that point and had been an activist to some degree for a long time. And Terry presented the IPCC data up to that point and showed their scenarios for carbon emissions for the 21st century with the best case scenario peaking around 2030 and coming back down. And I went up to her afterwards and and said, but didn't the most recent report you guys put out say that if emissions didn't peak by around 2015 and start coming back down that we were pretty much all screwed? And and she said, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And I said, what am I missing here? And she said, you're not missing anything. There's, there's no scenario on the table in which we avoid all the worst-case consequences that we're looking at. And she literally put her hand on my shoulder and said, I'm sorry, my generation failed yours. And so it was incredibly rattling and pushed me into a dark period of despair, but it was also a period of grieving and letting go of a lot of what I was holding on to, which also opened up a new kind of gratitude and deeper connection with the things that I loved about our world and the people that I loved that I was willing to fight for. And so it, it really motivated me to a new level of commitment and willingness to make sacrifices. Tim DeChristopher went into a next stage of activism. This is a trailer for a documentary about Tim DeChristopher's life called Bitter 70. Right, two and a quarter in the back and not a two and a half. Two and a half, you did two. Thank you, I'd have three and a half. They said, hi, are you here for the auction? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, are you here to be a bidder? And I said, well, yes, I am. So, bidder number 70. An environmentalist threw a controversial oil and gas lease auction into turmoil today. Well, Tim DeChristopher says he's willing to go to jail, and it's possible that's where he'll wind up. A college student may face federal criminal charges for disrupting that auction with bogus bids. Actually winning a dozen bids in a row worth nearly $2 million. Tim DeChristopher, take us to that moment. You go to that auction. What was your intent and what was your feeling at that moment where you're walking up to that auction? Well, my, my intent was to stand in the way of that auction in any way that I could. I'd been studying social movement history and realizing that the climate movement at that time didn't really look anything like the successful social movements in our history because it was so focused on appeasing our current power structures and trying to make itself non-threatening. And I saw that successful social movements have always pressured those in power and made them uncomfortable and using techniques like civil disobedience. So 
I was looking for the opportunity to do something like that, and this turned out to be the perfect opportunity where they, they opened up uh, the possibility for me to be a bidder, and I was just sort of looking at the situation, saying, if I do this, I'll probably go to prison for two or three years. Could I live with that? And I thought, yeah, I could, I could live with that. So you were prosecuted for a couple of federal crimes, and then you, you went to prison. Did you convert any people to climate advocates when you were in prison? You know, there, there was a guy in the, in the bunk next to me that was a coal miner from Vernal, Utah, and he only had one lung, so I think he already had some grievances <laughs> against the coal industry. But I think I shifted his views a little bit about what kind of people stand up against the fossil fuel industry. Now, you've been out for a little bit. You're still on probation. Can you envision getting arrested again? Yeah, absolutely. Very, very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Georgia Hursty, you were in Los Angeles when Hurricane Katrina hit. And what did you do? I was working for KPFK, which is a Pacifica free speech radio station. And after watching the news, myself and two of my colleagues got in a, in a vehicle and drove to New Orleans. We got there three days after the storm hit, collecting stories from locals and having them show us what they were going through and what they were dealing with and seeing the racism firsthand. And then I went back to New Orleans for about two years with volunteers, seeing really what direct action actually looked like, where people would stand you know, toe-to-toe with bulldozers to protect the houses down there. And you were then later also prosecuted for some federal crimes involving oil. Right. So in 2010, the BP spill happened, uh, which, again, devastated communities. So we did an action against the Harvey Explorer, which was contracted by Shell to go drill in the Arctic and boarded the vessel that was in Port Fouchon in southern Louisiana and painted on the bow of the ship with oil from the BP spill, Arctic next question mark. And it was at the same time that Ken Salazar was in Louisiana assessing the damage from the BP spill. So we were, all seven of us were charged with two felonies with a maximum of 12 years. And the next day, Ken Salazar announced that he was putting a moratorium on Arctic drilling for a year, um, which was great. (laughs) There there have been few moments in my direct action experience where there's been that immediate of (laughs) of a result. Those charges was about a year and a half long legal battle, and we took a plea eventually. Georgia Hursty, after that incident in the Gulf, you went to Portland. You arrive at the St. John's Bridge in the middle of the night. It's dark, and you're going to jump off a bridge. (laughs) People have been organizing against Shell for decades, and Shell's drilling rig was in the Arctic waiting, waiting to drill. And, you know, the, the chance that we had in Portland was really just being able to seize the moment because the Fenica had run aground and we'd found a choke point, knowing that Shell couldn't drill as long as we could prevent the Fenica from leaving Portland. And fortunately, it was dark and I couldn't see how far away the water was. (laughs) (laughs) So 13 people go over, you have a marine radio, and then you see the Fenica and a drawbridge lifting, it's coming towards you. Take us to that moment. Right, so we were 13 people across the span of the St. John's Bridge, and the Fenica came towards us, and I hailed the Fenica on the radio and said, this is the activist under the bridge, and you are on a collision course, and you're putting people's lives at risk. Please stop. And they eventually radioed back and said, this is the Fenica. We're not going to stop, so move. And then I repeated my message. We obviously weren't in a position where we could move. And that seemed like kind of forever where everyone was waiting with bated breath. You know, the water was filled with kayakers. There were the activists on the bridge, and you could feel the kind of the tension in that moment while everyone was waiting to see what the Fenica would do. And eternity <laughs> passed, and then the Fenica slowly started to, to turn around, and you could hear the uproars of cheering from the quayside and from the water, and then it turned all the way around and went back to, back to its port. And uh, not long after that, Shell announced that they were uh, temporarily... 
for the foreseeable future suspending their operations in the Gulf. I contacted Shell for their comment on this incident, what impact it had on their operations, and this is from a Shell spokeswoman, quote, our decision to cease further exploration activity offshore Alaska for the foreseeable future was due to the drilling of a dry hole, high costs, and an unpredictable regulatory environment. While we respect the views of those who oppose Arctic exploration, opposition to our projects in this northwest U.S. did not play a role in that decision. That's Helen O'Connor from Shell Oil. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about taking action to stop a climate catastrophe. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. Greg Dalton's back with climate change activists Tim DeChristopher, founder of the Climate Disobedience Center, Georgia Hursty from Greenpeace, and Brendan Steele, director of stakeholder engagement at Future 500. Here's Greg. Brendan Steele, what do you think about that direct action against Shell? Was it the right approach to confront the company in that way, or was there another way? I think it depends what your ultimate goals are, uh, what your asks of the company are. We work inside a number of companies. We work with a number of companies to help them engage stakeholders. It's a jargony term. And we always aim to find common ground in that process. And our concern at times, whether it's a certain campaign or an overall strategic goal, is what the main ask is. And in this case, with the, with the oil and gas industry, we see that direct activism, that civil disobedience is coming to them with, uh, with an ask of to cease to exist anymore, and that's not going to open up the room for dialogue. Tim Christopher, you want them to mm-hmm. cease to exist. You don't think that they're part of a transition, that they have to die and something green has to grow somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think that is the, the position of, of fossil fuel abolition, that we actually need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. We need to build an energy economy that actually works for people and for our communities and our society and for future generations. And the fossil fuel industry as it exists now doesn't have a role in that future. I think that regardless of how big a role they might have played in our past, I think, I think their time is done. Everyone in this room, everyone listening to this used fossil fuels today and will use fossil fuels tomorrow, and it's so deeply embedded. I mean, is that realistic that all of them can't play any role and that suddenly we're going to drive solar-powered cars? I haven't seen a solar-powered car yet. I mean, how realistic is that, Timothy Christopher? I mean, I think 200 years ago, you could have said the exact same thing about slavery and the way that our entire economy was touched by slavery, and, and you couldn't interact with our economy without in some way benefiting from slave labor. And, and the cost of getting off slavery was a lot less than people argued at the time. Robert Kennedy Jr. has written some articles about this. And I think we, you know, we, have, we have solutions that are actually being resisted by the fossil fuel industry. We cannot unleash the solutions that we have until the fossil fuel industry gets out of the way. That's the goal that we're working towards, and that's the vision of a truly healthy and clean energy economy. Brendan Steele, doing away totally with fossil fuel companies, no rule in the future? What do you think? During our lifetime, it's likely not going to happen. I think that there, that there is the uh, possibility to negotiate with the fossil fuel industry to create a system in which economies around the world eventually decarbonize. But I'm concerned that a pipeline-by-pipeline and train-by-train battle against the fossil fuel industry is a a losing battle. And you can knock out the Exxons or the BPs of the world, but then you look at the state-owned oil companies, the Saudi Aramcos, the Gazproms, the Venezuelan state-owned oil company, they are the giants and they wield immensely more power. And I don't see them going away anytime soon. Georgia Hursty, the Keystone XL pipeline was recently rejected by President Obama. The environmental movement hailed that as a victory. Other people would say that that may feel good, but it doesn't keep any oil on the ground because the oil that would have gone the pipeline is going on trains, is going to other pipelines. So what do you think? Was that a feel-good victory or was that a real keep-it-in-the-ground victory? It's difficult to quantify the, the full range of effectiveness of direct action and the work that people did fighting the Keystone XL pipeline. Direct action is often 
about empowering people and shifting the national and international conversation um, about fossil fuels, about corporate power and influence. And so I think there were so many small and big actions and organizing around Keystone XL, and I think that it is absolutely a victory and in addition to empowering an entire generation of people that are going to continue to take action, continue to organize. Tim DeChristopher, one of the challenges for climate is it's hard to see victims of climate. Polar bears, glaciers are remote and far away for most people. It's not like your friend who's gay who's in the closet or a woman who can't vote or an African-American person you like, right? It doesn't have a, the human face that is the victim of climate. Part of the reason that there's not a better face on climate change is just the failure of our public leaders to do a better job of connecting the dots. One of the greatest humanitarian crises on the planet right now is happening from the refugees streaming out of Syria and, and the, the terrorist groups like ISIS that have, have formed out of that situation, which was a civil war that was largely triggered by a climate-induced drought, according to the CIA. They list that as, as the major factor that set off that situation. So when we look at the movements that are really capturing a lot of public attention right now, like Black Lives Matter, I think they've done a better job of connecting the dots so that when a young black kid gets shot by, by the cops, you know, it's the bullet that kills the kid. And yet this isn't just an issue about guns, and this isn't just an issue about crime because police are involved, but this is a more structural systemic issue about white supremacy that pervades our whole society. That actually, I think, took a lot of work from a lot of activists trying to connect those dots over years and decades. I don't think it's implicitly any harder to connect the dots between the kid who dies from a bullet in a civil war in Syria to the climate change that triggered that situation. I just think it takes that much effort of public leaders that, that are willing to tell that story and connect those dots. Brendan Steele, Future 500 is working with some Republican donors who are coming out mm -hmm. of the closet on climate. So tell us about Jay Faison, Trammell Crow, and some of the other people you're working with. So Jay Faison, Trammell S. Crow, and Andy Sabin are three billionaire donors to the Republican Party, major donors, and they are all as I would say, rapidly pro-climate. They've not been aligned with the Republican Party on climate and environmental issues, and for most of their lives, they've been mostly lone wolves on the issue and in the party. Um, it's been over the last few years that these three donors have come to know each other and are beginning to strategize about how they can influence the party to change. We've seen Trammell S. Crow re-engage the party with the requirement of each of his donations that certain individuals within the GOP have meetings, interact with climate advocates of his choice. And so it's been fascinating to see the party begin to mobilize in favor of climate. Where have they had any influence? I think time has been too short to see, especially on the climate issue. Andy Sabin has worked mostly on water issues and, and uh, uh, conservation issues across the globe and has had more success there. But Jay Faison's operation is, is brand spanking new. It's, it's a really short amount of time to judge results. He's a North Carolina entrepreneur who's pledged $175 million to work on climate. Tim DeChristopher, what do you think of engagement with Republicans like that? Or do you want to do away with the Republican Party like you'd want to do away with the oil companies? I don't necessarily want to do away with the Republican Party. I think engagement with grassroots conservatives is, is very productive. You know, I, I spent uh, most of my years as an activist in Utah, and I actually had a great relationship with, with a lot of conservatives in Utah and found a lot of common ground. But I don't think that the left-right spectrum of our political system is really realistic. To me, it's more like a steep pyramid where a lot of us at the bottom have more common ground on either the left or the right than we do with the folks up at the top. Organizing on climate change at this point has to take into account the fact that we are going down a, a rocky and chaotic road of, of extreme change. And so it becomes all the more important who's steering the ship as we go down that course. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. It seems to me with the greater and greater disparity the 1%, now the half percent, owning more than half of the world's wealth, do the wealthy have an obligation to not fight us, but to protect the world 
which they have benefited from. Who'd like to tackle that one? Tim Christopher? I mean, I think that's kind of like asking if someone who robs a bank has a moral obligation to use the money that they stole to, <laughs> to help the people from whom they stole it. It's, it's an obligation to not be the 1% and to give back all of their ill-gotten gains. Let's go to our next question. Hi, my name is Carter Brooks. I'm an artist and philosopher of climate art. My question is about courage, honesty, and despair. There's a tendency for us, particularly climate activists, to avoid anything that might possibly lead anybody into despair. And so we're, I think, not quite honest with ourselves about the scale of our issue. And the trope is, well, if anyone goes into despair, they'll just be inactive. You've proven that to be otherwise. And I wonder whether you could comment about that a little bit. These things that are called negative emotions in in our society, like sadness and despair and fear and anger, you know, I really think that they actually have a critical role to play and, and can help ground us in reality. I think it takes a lot of effort to deny despair. And, and I see a lot of folks in the climate movement that waste so much of their efforts fighting off despair. And I think that when we stop wasting our efforts on fighting that off and acknowledge that as like an honest part of ourselves, we can move forward much more productively. And when we're honest with each other, we stop pretending and making each other feel crazy. Because the fact is that a lot of people are feeling those things, and when we repress them because we're told that we're not supposed to have despair and we're not supposed to have anger, when we repress them, then other people who are feeling that inside but not seeing it honored by anyone else, they think, oh, something must be wrong with me, you know, which is extremely demoralizing. But everybody's feeling like something must be wrong with them because they're feeling what nobody is willing to talk about. And I think we, we need to be willing to, to bring our full selves, including our anger and our sadness and our despair, and, and mobilize all of that strength that comes from it towards this challenge. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, I'm Paul Passimino. I'm with uh, Amazon Watch. Um, I want to applaud your, your activism and remind people that in addition to these cases where people are putting themselves and their lives on the line, many of the communities that we partner with in the Amazon and elsewhere who are on the front lines of climate change are basically facing these life or death struggles every day. These fossil fuel companies are at their doorsteps trying to destroy their existence. And so, you know, we're fortunate here, but there are people who are fighting this fight for us. Georgia? Yeah, I think it's very important for the climate movement to come over to the side of that environmental justice lens where we're willing to talk about the people of color, the communities around the world that are struggling and that are on the front lines and the suffering that's going on, the risks that people are taking, and the privilege that we have to choose to get arrested, to choose to do actions when people are being you know, murdered or fighting these fights every single day. And it's much more about people in that way than necessarily about trees and water. I mean, interconnected, of course. We're going to go to our next question. Welcome. Hi. Um, I'm on the divestment campaign at the University of San Francisco. Um, just tips and what you honestly think about the divestment movement. Brandon Steele, you actually advocate for constructive engagement with companies. Mm-hmm. So tell us about, is divestment a good idea? I think the divestment movement has changed the cultural narrative. It has been extremely powerful symbolically, and I think it's been important to bring companies to the table and open up the space for a price on carbon. We see an untapped coalition, Jay Faison, who you mentioned earlier, uh, ExxonMobil, Citizens Climate Lobby, and James Hansen all advocate the same climate policy, if you look at it. There's room to advance that even through the divestment movement, But the actual process of divesting from companies, I'm concerned, actually disempowers the climate movement because you're dropping the share price and having people who care less then buy in. So selling fossil Mm -hmm. fuel stocks is a bad idea. Tim Christopher? I think the divestment movement, first off, has been incredibly important as an entry ramp for young people into the climate movement. And divestment movement has been encouraging young people to start thinking about the institutions that they're a part of and thinking about things systemically and leveraging that institutional and system power. In terms of divestment itself, I think it clearly already is having an impact with companies like NRG citing that as a major pressure source for why they're shifting their their model. I think shareholder engagement can make a difference at the margins with like some worker policies and that sort of thing. But when it comes to the core business model of a company 
who owns trillions of dollars worth, worth of assets that are still in the ground, there's not going to be any level of shareholder engagement that is going to convince them to abandon those assets and leave them in the ground. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, in my mind, climate organizers have this daunting task of undermining the fossil fuel industry as well as engaging a population of ordinary folks who feel powerless and are disengaged. And I'm wondering what y'all think is the best, some of the best pathways to engage folks to just not just turn out in large numbers for a big protest over a day, but also engage people to take like higher risk activity like the two of you did. Georgia? I think a lot of the, a lot of the grassroots movements, grassroots organizing that's happened where people have shown up in all of the kind of solidarity of issues. So there'll be people that are working on race that are oriented toward the environment, that are oriented toward gender. And what has been amazing over the course of the last two years is to watch how people get increasingly more empowered to take action, both for the issue that they're particularly fighting on, but then also taking action in the way that all of the issues are connected to one another and can show up for each other as allies, can show up as activists, can show up as legal support. They feel like they're part of a community and growing together with every action they take has what really makes people more not only willing to take those risks, but more empowered by it. Greg Dalton has been talking to climate change champions. Tim DeChristopher, founder of the Climate Disobedience Center. Georgia Hursty from Greenpeace. And Brendan Steele, director of stakeholder engagement at Future 500. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our free podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. The audio engineer is William Bloom. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.